Kia ora and welcome to the Creative Matters podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with New Zealand artists. I'm your host, Mandy Yakich. These conversations are intimate, uplifting and insightful. The guests on the show have absolutely enriched my life and I'm sure their stories will have the same effect on you. Thank you so much for joining me to listen to these amazing people speak about what drives them, the way they work, and their personal takes on life. Hi, and welcome back to Creative Matters. This is episode 61 and is the first episode in season three, which is generously brought to you by Creative Communities Scheme Auckland. This week, we are speaking with Tiffany Singh. Tiffany is a social practice artist specializing in socially engaged art outcomes. Her practice explores relationships and engagement between arts, culture, health and well-being. She was born in Aotearoa, New Zealand, of Indian and Pacific descent, and is currently living in London, UK. Tiffany's work positions the arts as a vital contributor to health and well-being by utilising a fine art framework. Her interest in cultural preservation combined with an integrated social discourse has seen her use the arts as a vehicle for education, outreach and empowerment. Tiffany talks passionately about her priority to make work that facilitates other people to be seen and heard, how she highlights and empowers marginalised communities, how her Buddhism beliefs and culture inform her practice, and the ways she uses colour, space, materiality, sound and smell to connect and communicate. You can see process videos of Tiffany's work on our blog at creativematters.co.nz. We are calling by Zoom to London and sometimes some of the uh, reception or the uh, internet connection isn't the best, but bear with me. I'm sure you're going to really enjoy Tiffany's story and it is absolutely worth listening to. Kia ora, Tiffany. Kia ora. Nice to see you, and it's been a long time coming. We've been communicating for some time, and uh, it's really, really lovely to finally meet you. I think maybe when we first started, I was in Taiwan, I think. Yes, you were. Um, Yeah, on the residency. So we've been chatting through different countries and different time zones for a couple of months. We have, and here we are now. I'm in the dark at 10 o'clock at night in New Zealand. (laughs) And you're in London in the morning. You've just sent your child off to daycare. And, uh, yeah, I've got a snoring dog and more porks in the background. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Creative Matters. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here and be a part of what you do, which is an amazing contribution to enable people to understand a little bit more about the backstory of what we create. Yeah, thank you. So you've got an incredibly um, varied, amazing practice. Uh, I first actually met you, I don't know if you remember, but in 2012, I was an art educator at Auckland Art Gallery and was working in that learning centre space where you installed your beautiful work. 
Um, and yeah, ever since then, I've been following your journey and you're just so inspirational. So I'm really looking forward to hearing all about how you got to this place. Um, so can you just go back to when you were a child, Tiffany? Sure. Um, I have just turned 44 yesterday <laughs> on Monday on Halloween. <laughs> so quite a long time ago now to go back into the recesses. But uh, I had a, a very simple childhood. It was just my mum and myself uh, growing up in Northcote on the North Shore of Auckland. Um and I was very fortunate that my mum recognised quite early on that I wasn't into sports <laughs> and I wasn't an athletic child <laughs> and that I had um, a lens towards creative practice. So my mum uh, put me into Kristen, which at the time was uh, one of the new schools in, on the North Shore. And it was created through parents that were trying to find an alternative to the heavily sports-based culture of New Zealand and the focus was on performing arts and arts uh, alongside academia. So uh, for me, it was a, a, a such a blessing to actually be in an environment where I didn't feel like there was something wrong with me because I wasn't into sports <laughs> uh, and then I could apply myself in a creative way. So for most of my schooling life, my subjects were photography and graphic design and painting <laughs> uh, and all the art subjects. So I think my only core subjects were it was English for uh, the latter part of my schooling years. So from from quite an early age, it, it really has been the thing that I have focused on. Mm. Um, obviously, at that stage, it was a little bit of a struggle because the core subjects were still two dimensional. Uh, and quite often drawing or painting based uh, as to which neither of which I can do. Um, I can't draw and I can't paint. <laughs> really? How interesting. So, no, not at all. So it's, um, and it still comes up every time we have a conversation about installing a work <laughs> or designing anything. I still have to make an apology for my incredibly crude drawings. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you actually can. Um, I, I have tried. <laughs> I think, um, I think my speciality is three-dimensional space. So there is something that happens and I'm I'm also terrible at working off floor plans. So I find it very hard to, I, I need to feel it. it mm -hmm. The work comes from such a sensory perception that in both the colour and the emotive quality of the work that until I actually stand in the physical space, it's very hard for me to imagine or see what is going to be there. It's really only until I can have a physical relationship with the light quality, the spatial dimensions, and can relate to it as a physical entity in the space. And then it becomes crystal clear immediately. I can see the work in the space, but I have to be in the space to be doing that, mm, which is something that I'm still trying to work through, um, because especially during COVID and during lockdown, it wasn't possible to do that. Yeah. So it's uh it was quite challenging for me to have to almost retrain my brain uh, to work in an imaginary space. Mm -hmm. So the other space for me that is very is critical is the dream space. That if I don't dream a work and I can't see it in my subconscious really really clearly, I don't entirely trust that it's gonna manifest. 
So it's kind of a, I guess it's the top of my head, it's a very intuitive space that the work comes through. Yeah. Uh, and that is very much related to, to the feeling and the sensation of the space. Mm. Um, most of the time when I work internationally, the work that I have proposed changes when I get on site for the same reasons, yeah. um, whether that's the dimensions or the relationship, but then it's also uh, dependent on the culture and the land and the people that you're working with mm. that have an influence on what needs to happen in that space. Unusual, and you wouldn't have been seeing a lot of that kind of work around you. So um, what were you feeling at that time? Did you think that you really wanted to explore that? Was that already in your head, or was that something that came a bit later? was definitely something that came a bit later I think that has to do with two things one as you said exposure to understanding the different modes of working creatively in terms of the diversity of arts practice Um, at that stage it was still quite traditional Um, you know there was no conversation around social practice or anything like that was Mm. not on the table at all so uh, at that stage when I left school I was graphic designer I became a graphic designer because I was probably focused on um, supporting myself and being independent, which has always been a huge thing for me. Mm. Uh, And at that stage, it probably made the most sense that it was a creative practice that was some form of, um, at the time, I thought quite useful application of creativity uh, until I got into the industry and then realised that I was using my creativity to sell product that I didn't necessarily believe in. Yeah, it became massively ethical for me and I left (laughs) and then I went traveling I left I started in at Elam in uh, second year when I was 24 so later when I left um, my high school I I came to London I Mm. traveled from 18 to 22 left New Zealand and travelled through South America and Europe and the UK for those three years and then came back and went to university. Mm-hmm. And at that point, there was still no conversation of social practice on the table. Um, I was still struggling with two-dimensional, domestic-scale, commercial artwork. Um, I've never really fitted into the dealer gallery model. Mm. It's always been quite problematic for me. Uh, and for the market of how to deal with me. <laughs> yeah, it's very different. Um, and it's it? always, yeah, it's always yeah. been kind of a hard sell around how to present or sell social practice work as well, mm. because quite often it's the process that is more important than the outcome. Yeah. So, in terms of market and commercial positioning, that's been quite challenging. Um, I don't think we've really had the framework around it to understand it Mm. yet because there's still a focus on art as the object and of handing over money and getting something back. Uh, So that's still still something, still something that I struggle with and I'm working through. So Mm. most of my, um, my money comes from commissions or from um commission some festivals or museums or public galleries or funding mm. so I still really haven't developed a a, a market per se so yeah it's yeah but it's then, still an interesting I mean, conversation 
Yeah, I mean, it's it is such an interesting practice in that way, and it is, I guess, it's it's quite different. You know, there's not that many artists from New Zealand anyway working in the way that you work. So, I mean, can you actually explain how you work and and what kind of artist you are for people who who aren't familiar with your work? Sure. Um, just going back to the Elam thing, it was it was really interesting because it was kind of the first opportunity that I had to work in three dimensional space of having a studio and having space to work like that. But obviously, you don't have a lot of money for materials, uh, and you don't have a lot of space for scale. Mm. So it wasn't really until um, I got offered the Sydney Biennale exhibition, which was in two thousand and twelve that I actually had uh, the first time I was given budget and scale to work with. So that was hugely formative to actually be able to be given two sites on two different spaces that were really large scale um, to work with. And that really cemented something for me. It really, especially working in that way with an intuitive spiritual relationship to the space and to the work, and working with sound um, and sacred objects. And uh, it was definitely the scale that triggered something for me, for sure. Yeah. But um, And what was that actual, um, what was the was, what was the project or the, the work that you did for the Sydney Biennale? That was Knock on the Sky, Listen to the Sound. So that was a social practice project. And the way that I worked with school children initially in Sydney, Um, And it was replicated off a smaller work that was done through Enjoy Gallery Space in Wellington Mm -hmm. uh, in the Dows in the years previously to that for the Crystal City exhibition. That was the Contemporary Asian Art Exhibition curated by Emma Bugden. And the idea was that there was thousands of wind chimes in the courtyard at at the Dows. And they were, that was like the pilgrimage site and they were calling the chimes home and there was other chimes at Enjoy. And you could go into Enjoy Gallery and take one of the wind chimes away and paint it and decorate that and document that and then take it on a journey back to the douse. And there was a tree in the gallery that you could hang the wind chimes back on. So one space became empty and the other space became full and the pilgrimage through audience participation was documented Mm. from the sites so it was similar to that for Sydney that Mm. the pilgrimage site was on Cockatoo Island Mm. and then the the beginning work there where you could come and take one of the wind chimes from was at Pier 23 uh, down in Circular Quay Mm. so it was a large scale of a bubby yeah, that's incredible. And and how did they? I mean, you said though it was one of your sort of first, first big installations. How did they actually find you? Um, I I think the curator um, from the Sydney. There's two curators from that year, and they came over to New Zealand and met with Deborah White. Uh, and it was Deborah that connected them mm. to me. I think they went to the Dows as well when that show was on and saw the work in the courtyard with the wind chimes. So mm. I think they must have been over earlier in 2011 and seen the work at the Dows. 
Yeah. And because it was the Sydney Biennale curatorial concept that year was all our relations. So there was a there was that relation to pilgrimage and um, to different ethnicities, and it was there was quite a lot of work that was based in the ephemeral realm. Mm. So it was a good connection to that, and also the sound aspect. Yeah, uh, yeah sound and scent so is something I yeah. I really try and work with as much as possible. It's really important to me that the artwork is a, as inclusive as possible. So sound and colour and scent are amazing devices to be able to use for visually impaired people yeah. uh, to give them access to the work. Yeah, so, yeah. That's so amazing. And it's something that isn't considered very often by artists, I guess. Yeah, it's really lovely. And so, you know, it, just going back to my question earlier, for people who aren't familiar with your work. The in- installation is probably the me- the medium that the social practice happens through, I guess. Yeah. That's the physical form that it quite often takes. Yeah. Um, as the outcome of the artwork, but the social practice, the key to the social practice is that it's working with communities largely marginalised or who don't have a large platform for voice and who are quite often misunderstood. So for me, the most important thing is to um, bring equality and provide a space for other people's voices to be heard. So in a lot of ways, the work is kind of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. The physical work is the vehicle for that to happen through. So my job is really not to... um, make work about what I think about (laughs) it's more about making work that facilitate facilitates other people to be seen and heard that is really the priority for me Mm -hmm. um, as an artist is to be useful through a creative platform to support other people uh, that don't have the same access uh, to be heard or whether that's misunderstood Or, I mean, I would say largely for me, the work comes out of being really upset or being really um, unhappy (laughs) about the state of the world uh, and how people are treated and what's going on in it and trying to find some ways to mediate that space uh, in a positive way that is supportive for and to other people. Um, so a lot of it comes out of my frustration. A lot of it comes out of my um, I, uh, the feelings of injustice that mm-hmm. operate within us or looking at where I think the social ills are and trying to assess what I could do to be beneficial in that space to have a conversation that a lot of people aren't hearing. Um, I think possibly Journey of a Million Miles uh, is a really good example of that work. Uh, that work was in Headland Sculpture in the Gulf in 2017. Yeah. Uh, and that worked with, I worked with the Resettled Community Coalition of New Zealand, uh, which most people refer to as the refugee community. But that term unto itself is incorrect because we don't have refugees in New Zealand. Once uh, the resettled community is granted citizenship, they are given a passport, so they are New Zealanders. So the language around that is very misleading and very isolating. So 
at the time there was a lot of conversations about increasing the quota um, of refugee of the resettled community to New Zealand to Aotearoa and there was quite a lot of backlash to that suggestion because a lot of the conversation was based on uh, the politics of the cost of resettling people uh, and that was the conversation that was dominating the media and we also are in a situation in New Zealand where because we are a small population there there are multiple voices and there are there are a few voices on multiple platforms mm. so you have similar people on the news to on the radio to writing the papers so once you have an opinion, that opinion is everywhere and it's harder to get a diverse cross-section of narrative within that space when it's monopolised by a few people. So I thought it was really important to try and bring a counter-narrative to that dialogue. Um, and by doing that, the only way to really do that is talk to the people who are actually involved and to hear their side of the conversation uh, and to also educate uh, the rest of Aotearoa about what the resettled community brings to our country, which mm. is huge, you know, and those conversations just weren't happening. So it's works like that that come from a place of um, feeling like there's a communities that are disenfranchised, um, that aren't being heard, uh, that aren't being, I guess, in some ways fairly represented. Uh, in terms and what, of, what, um, what did that work look like? What, what was that all about? For uh, so it was, um, it was five upcycled boats, upcycled dinghies that were that stood up, um, and they would they were turned into art objects. They had sculptural aspects on the outside of them, and textile and fabrics and mats underneath them, and cushions and pillows. And we recorded the stories. The resettled community wrote the stories in four parts about what it was like, what, where they came from, how they became refugees, how they sought refuge within New Zealand, and what their life said, lives had been like once they had resettled to Aotearoa. Mm. So it was a, each story was in four parts. It was a very similar mechanism for each person. So it followed. But then uh, we worked with people in media like um, Jesse Mulligan and uh, who else was there? Uh, Frankie Stevens and um, Victor Roger, uh, quite prominent people who were in media whose voices were really well known, uh, John Hawksby. And we gave them the stories and they re-recorded the stories to offset the bias around accent so that the stories that you listened to were in New Zealand accents, mm -hmm. well-known voices that you, we were used to hearing on the mm -hmm. news or in media, so people paid attention to the voices because mm -hmm. they were familiar, yeah. but offset the, offset the bias of accents. So it presented as stories of New Zealanders, which is what the resettled community yeah. is now that they live here. Oh, that's brilliant. That's really clever. So it was very powerful. And there was over 50,000 people that visited Headland Sculpture on the Gulf that year. So wow. in terms of that, um, the positioning for me of social practice is pivotal around well-being and education, that it's twofold, that it's mm. as beneficial for the people that participate and as beneficial for the audience that 
Mm. Um, Encounter the work. You're educating the audience. Yeah. Yeah, and not through my perspective, but through the perspective of people who are truly involved Mm. uh, and whose stories are often misunderstood or not heard. Yeah. So um, there's a transparency and there's an honesty. Mm. Uh, and it largely, in, in a lot of ways, my job is to facilitate that. Mm. And how do you go about that process, Tiffany? I mean, how do you actually find the people and sort of bring it all together? And, you know, I guess financially, is it a funded project or, you know, how does that actually come together? Yeah, in, in both ways, funding from multiple sources. Um, the creative community scheme has been very useful in terms of the seed funding to enable me to have conversations with the communities and go and see them and spend time because a, a lot of a lot of the process is building trust. Yeah, a, a lot of that process is trying to explain to communities who have often been misunderstood or mistreated um, that an arts platform could potentially be beneficial for them. Um, and gaining trust in that way and spending time with people and also enabling them to understand that it's not it's not a one-off engagement, that there is a sustainable practice around that that is valued and taken care of. Usually there's a contract of a memoriam of understanding um, so that both parties know whose role is what and what the role of the artwork is uh, and what the parameters around that are. And then once that first stage has been established, then I usually apply for funding to develop it uh, after I've got that initial seed partnership developed. Which must be so hard for you because you're you're putting in so much love and passion and time into a project that you want to develop, but then you are still kind of having to make that application which is hard in itself and then you know have it accepted so that sort of adds a whole other dimension to your work doesn't it yeah I think the frameworks that the works are realized within um the caliber of those is vital uh headland sculpture in the gulf or um you know in the case of one of the works that you have the images of the fly me up to where you are the work with the children you know, that's that's happened under the Auckland Festival, Christchurch Festival, Wellington Festival, New Zealand Festival, Darwin Festival, and next year the Melbourne Festival. So they're all reputable festivals and houses for the projects to be realised in. So that is vital. That yeah. is really vital, that the calibre of those are respected and visible. Mm. Um, and obviously I have the support of the festivals to make that happen. Yeah. So, I mean, that project is still going. That's been going since 2010. Yeah, the last amazing. iteration of the project was in Darwin in 2021, which was yeah. very interesting because it was over COVID, during COVID, mm. um, and Black Lives Matters. Can you tell so us it was very, how, Can you tell us about that project? So that project is uh, developed in schools through festivals as an education outcome. It's an education kit that the schools can sign up for and then we go into the schools and facilitate the project. So it's um, 
in New Zealand, it was realised in SL1 and 2 schools, so it was the lower end of the spectrum. So, um, again, that very strong positioning between education and wellbeing, uh, wellbeing, education, outreach for the children, but also education for audiences. Uh, at the time when I started the project in 2010, there wasn't the narrative or the conversation around child poverty in New Zealand like there is now. Uh, it wasn't being talked about. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't being acknowledged in the same way that it is today. Mm. Uh, so it was a, it was a probably the hardest project I've ever done. I, I really didn't expect the outcome to be so heartbreaking. It was oh, very, so very sad. emotional. Yeah, that would have been quite. So the actual the actual project is um, flag, like flags that get hung. Yeah, so the, flags. Yeah, so there's an education kit. So it starts with a mind map, and there's a mind map with a, a bubble in the middle where you draw yourself as the child, and then around the outside there's speech bubbles of what are your hopes and dreams for yourself, your family, the world, the environment, and your community. So the children fill that out. There's um, there's films, there's books, there's full education resources to support those questions because largely you're talking to children who have never talked about their future, who have never been asked what they want to do when they grow up. They don't have the capacity to understand that things can be any different from the way that it is. So their acceptance of the hardship um, is incredibly detrimental because the mindset is... This is how it is. This is how it's always going to be. So, and that's it. That's my lot. So I'm not going to try and change it. I don't need to go to school. Um, my life's never going to be any different from how it is now. So what we're trying to do is empower them to acknowledge that they are in a country where they have access to education and healthcare, which unto itself is a huge privilege and try and get them to start talking about some of their hopes and dreams for the future and try and kickstart that cognitive um, conversation around having dreams and having hopes and actually being able to see a future for themselves outside of the reality that they're in. Mm. And that is really challenging and, again, based around trust. So... um, because we're asking them to be so honest about their realities, there's a lot of fear around that that they don't they don't want to get their families in trouble. They don't want to talk about what's going on at home. They don't want to, and because it's in the environments where it is like that for all of the children, it becomes quite normal. It's normalised mm. because it, everybody's experiencing it. So the level of basic needs that was coming out of the project was phenomenal. Um, So they do that. They fill out the hopes and dreams sheet and then they turn that over and we ask them to choose one of their answers and convert that into visual imagery. So on the back of that mind map, they draw, they turn one one of the answers into an image and then once they've done that, we give each child a piece of the fabric and they paint that image onto the fabric. So to date, I think there's 32,000 kids that have been a part of the project. Wow, that's incredible. I can imagine um, that would have been really quite sort of moving 
to read some of the things that they'd come up with. And how, how well, did they again, I said, with the, making the image out of out of the words? How did they manage to make really well connection? Really well, really well. I mean, they're they're, we're, they're very supported. You know, it's a it's quite a long process mm. uh, that is unpacked quite well, so that there uh, there's no stress around it. There's also the conversation that there's no wrongs or rights. It's not being marked. Yeah. So it's taken out of that space of pressure. Um, it's taken out of that space, again, of giving them a space to feel validated and to have a voice mm. um, that a lot of them haven't been asked before. You know, I had and like... Did you, did you actually work with or did you have sort of a group of people working with the students or did they work with their teachers and then they passed? Both. On? They work with their teachers first and then once the mind maps have been filled out at the initial stage... Then we have a team of people that goes in and realises that's the second part of the project. Mm. So each festival okay. has an education team that goes into the schools and we take all of the materials. Um, so it's at, at no cost to the schools and provide the support for the school to realise mm. the project. And that's so amazing. I mean, it's, it's so, it's, it, you know, there's benefits on so many levels, like what you're actually doing for the children. I mean, just from, from my point of view as an educator, um, you know, you're helping them to connect and engage with art for a start, but then you're also doing all these other incredible things that are good for them in other ways. And then you're creating <clears throat> a thing of beauty which they can go to and connect with as well. I mean, so you've got the you've got the hard gritty stuff that's going on and the hard conversations, but it's presented still in a in a way of beauty which is quite an interesting kind of juxtaposition I guess. I think the, one of the most powerful things of the project is for the children seeing the work realised in its final iteration and understanding that their one small part can become a part of a very large thing that is really powerful Yeah. Um, and seeing that and going through the process of it is it's quite triggering you can see you can see them feeling like someone is does care and we are listening and also knowing that there is an audience of many people that sees it mm. uh it's really powerful for them and it's when you get it on as the multiple when it's on mass like that and it's completely unmediated and it's really honest and in a lot of cases quite upsetting it is hard as an adult, um, as, a, as the audience member, to, to not be really moved by it because it's, you know, it's not one that you're looking at. It's like 20,000 kids mm. saying we want to have food on the table, you know, like really basic need stuff that I don't think a lot of people expected to see coming out of New Zealand in 2010. Mm. Yeah. So I think it was a a bit of a wake-up call too. I think it was really interesting for people to be like, whoa. Like a lot of people asked me if I'd made the project in India and brought it back. A lot of people thought what they were seeing had come from a developing country. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? The work that you're doing is probably helping these conversations come, you know, come to light. And it's it's making people wake up, which is such an important thing. You know, it really resonates with me as somebody who works with children and, and just to be able to create a project that is 
actually not just about the final result, but, you know, that whole incredible process that you're taking people through that is so sort of so good for them and so educational for others. If, it, if it's only working for one side, it's, it, it can't, it doesn't work at all. Yeah. It has to be as equally beneficial from both sides from the beginning right through to the end. But yeah. it's interesting, a lot of the schools still contact me, even though they don't make go through the whole process to make the prayer flags. But a lot of the schools every year still contact me and ask me whether they can use the education kit and the mind map and go through that with the students because it keys into the teachers so much of what's going on for the children and where they're at and what they need. Yeah, uh, and it yeah, and it enables them to support them in a different way. Mm. Uh, which is amazing uh, and it was amazing. really interesting doing it during COVID because you know there's a whole whole other set of issues you mm. know when kids can't go to school and they're at home and yeah. um, so it, and it's also kind of a space of it's a therapeutic process for them to be able to actually have something where they can talk about what's going on and see a positive outcome from that so, so when you get um, commissions yeah. like um, from the Auckland Art Gallery, for example, that one in 2012, was it, I think? <laughs> May the rainbow always touch your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And so that that is quite a different thing again, isn't it, I guess? I mean, you're not working with a group of people. You, I guess you have different sort of aims for a work like that. So can you describe that installation and what that meant to you? Um, well, that was one of one of the first ones as well. That would have been a, a similar mm. year to uh, Sydney, and was it, what's all your it's a decade ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that work was looking at color, unpacking color, the benefits of color through all different cultures, uh, and the way that color resonates with us. Um, and the, the benefits of that. So it was a, a room full. Of, <laughs> absolutely full of colour and I think it was every two months we changed out the primary colour mm. so that the whole room changed and rolled through the rainbow and people were able to write about what the different colours meant to them and there was a focus of a particular colour for two months at a time and that rotated throughout the whole year. Yeah. So even though it wasn't social right. practice per se, it was still you could still engage with it. Yeah, exactly. And people connected it with it in different ways, you know, so you you definitely were getting that kind of those kind of responses from the audience. And in those ones you had little kind of collections of bottles and flowers and seeds and um sort of iconic or icons and 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 lots of little interesting groupings and on shelves, didn't you? So, uh, and that is quite a sort of common thread in your work, isn't it, where you sort of bring little collections together. Can you talk about those? Yeah. I, I, now that I can look at that retrospectively, I, it, is, it was possibly um, a very, very, very early iteration of Indra's bow. That's been at Life yeah. Papa. Because yeah, it was all of the thing. similar materials and the bottles mm. and looking at, like, the healing capacity of the natural world and scent scent and colour um, and focusing on each colour and bringing all of the natural medicines into that space that were in each colour. So in some ways, it's a very early iteration of 
exploring that work. And Indra's bow was just the most gorgeous work. I watched a video actually of, of you installing at Te Papa, which is New Zealand's um, national museum. So, you know, that in itself is pretty incredible that you're that you're showing your work there. Um, and that was sort of glass orbs and ribbons. And then you collected powders and, and materials from the kitchen, basically, didn't you? And put them in the in the glass orbs. Um, yeah, that was amazing. What was the process around around that? Um, it was, again, looking at uh, the healing benefits of art. And I think one of the key things with my practice and how I make work is that it's incredibly transparent. There's no... There's no tricks or there's, it's just what you see is what you get. Mm. <laughs> it's very, it's very honest like that. It's just, there's no, yeah, it's very, um, uh, yeah, it's just, it is what it is <laughs> in its purest form. <laughs> so it was looking at different cultures. It's uh, the Indian, my Indian ethnicity is a, has a huge role to play in the work that I make. Um and looking at all of the things in the natural world that we have access to uh, and trying to bring the beauty and um, the potency of the natural world around us into a designed aesthetic that looked incredibly beautiful, smelt incredibly beautiful, but if you unpacked it, it was probably what we live and see every day <laughs> in our lives. Mm. Yeah. So it was trying to bring an awareness to the beauty that is around us and the healing benefits that we have access to on a daily basis uh, and really prioritise that holistic way of living um, and thinking about art and creativity and making it accessible and bringing, just grounding it in our everyday lives of, you know, that you can potentially open the kitchen cupboards and, possibly see most of the things that are in this artwork in your own home but yeah. just looking at it in a different way yeah. of presenting that in a different way that gives it a different value um and positions it as something incredibly special mm. that we often overlook yeah and it's just so that was such a beautiful work I can't imagine how you actually installed it I mean obviously you've got some clever people helping you as well but just that it's quite a mathematical kind of you know, the way it was all laid out. Totally. I think that the Papa staff were unbelievable. The install team did three of the arcs and they were perfect. And I did one of them and it was a shambles. <laughs> <laughs> they had to go in and fix it for me. <laughs> but it must have been so hard. I mean, everything would have had to have been measured so, you know, accurately to get that sort of right effect, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it was four. There was only four. There's only four lines in that work, which is a really interesting when you see a work uh, like Olorangi, the one that's up in Auckland at the moment in HSBC, which is, you know, I think it's uh, 68 lines. So the wow. density of that compared to the the four lines in Papa, it's, yeah, but the, each arc hangs at a different height. So you kind of get that rainbow arc effect because yeah. they're like they're staggered mm. so yeah, it's, yeah it's really <laughs> strangely good. enough maths, the, maths is not my forte but yeah I that's had, what I was thinking <laughs> I have in the last decade 
got incredibly good at physics and maths. (laughs) (laughs) That's ironic, isn't it? And I'm sure your spatial design skills are improving after, you know, all the work that you've done. For sure. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one of where it comes from because it just, I can just see it in the space and I really, I don't really know where that comes from. Mm. It just kind of is there, Mm. which is why it's so critical for me to feel the space. Yeah. So a lot of your work is site specific, isn't it? Very much so. So you go to the space and then how do you actually develop an idea? How does it come to you? I think in, in, in some ways all the works are iterations of others. They're all connected. They all evolve. Um, possibly the, the the work that would be the newest and it's aesthetic or the most different is probably total internal reflection because really in a sense there's no physical anything in that work. It's just light. It's all light. Yeah. Yeah, but then conceptually, it's the same conversation around the color therapy, the healing, the wellness, the education. It's social practice. It's engaged with. It's you know, it was really interesting that we collected the data set off that, which is available as open source data. So there's all of those. It's a completely different work in terms of its aesthetic, but it's totally connected to my inquiry mm. around well-being and education and. Yeah, you know the power of color. Totally, and that um, that was at Tapapa as well, wasn't it? The total internal reflection, and um, and in that case, people actually chose a color that resonated with them, didn't didn't they? Yeah. So you walk through the black corridor and you push the button, and it turns that turns the whole room that color, and then it the light reset to the last thirty six people's color choices. So it was a constant revolving rainbow mm. chosen by audience participation but it was interesting to watch it over seasons the way that it shifted over seasons you know mm. like there were all the pinks and the oranges and the reds came out in winter <laughs> yeah I can imagine that's incredible so good um so you you know you've had so many exhibitions and you've you know you've shown your work um in all over New Zealand and galleries and museums and sculpture shows and also in Nepal, Bangkok, Taiwan, Samoa, California, Australia, you know, all over the place, probably other places as well. And then you've done all these different festivals, um, particularly particularly in Aotearoa, but in other places as well. And then you've also had 13 art artist residencies since 2011. The residencies are kind of, um, they're, I guess they're my thinking spaces. They're my, that's my dedicated space, mm. especially from since becoming a mum. You know, it's just, I find it so beneficial to just have that dedicated space to go there and think again. Mm. <laughs> think about my work again and kind of remember how I feel as a person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you lose that sometimes. Can, <laughs> connect back to myself and get back to my inquiry and um obviously now I you know that they are so productive they're incredibly productive spaces for me because it is that dedicated space which I don't really have outside of the residencies now mm, mm. so it's not yeah, yeah so they then they are way more valuable valuable to me from since becoming a mum 
Yeah. Um, so how does it actually work, Tiffany, that you you go to a place not necessarily where you're living, could be another country? How does it actually happen? How do you make it happen? Um, I'm usually invited or I apply for them. Yeah, so I only I only do residencies that are paid um, for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, sometimes they're connect, connected to an outcome. So the one that I was on in Taiwan recently, the the work that we made there went into the first feminist show in Taiwan, and we needed the entire three months to make that work because, again, it was social practice. We were working with women's communities. Mm. So, and it had been developed uh, in two stages. The first part of it was developed in on the residency in Thailand in 2018. Um, that residency, I actually had both my children with me. My son was five months old and my daughter was three and a half. So oh, wow. that we were in Thailand for five months together then. Um, and that was... So this work that has come about is has really come about since I have been a mother of looking at the way that women's art is viewed uh, and how our art is quite segregated from like the mainstream collection space. I think the, the demographic is that there's what five percent of women's artwork in the collections of museums and public galleries in the world. Um, so when we look at art history, as a marker for our human evolution, it's very much through the lens of the male gaze only. So mm. uh, that was really interesting to me, but also looking at how um, tradition and knowledge and Indigenous knowledge especially is handed down orally through women, through the woman lineage from mothers, mothers to daughters, and looking at how largely a lot of that manifests as craft and how craft has been seen as separate from fine art. So it's been left out of that conversation, but it's incredibly important. Um, and, and mostly craft is relate, related to the domestic. Mm. So you've got quilting, you've got baskets, you've got weaving, you've got, you know, you've got mm -hmm. all of these things that, yeah, that are, mm. are strongly re related and connected to the domestic. Mm. Um, so Taiwan was really interesting because it's in the 60s, late 60s, Taiwan did a thing, and I remember it, um, called the Living Room Factory. And you will remember in the 70s and the 80s that we used to get all of the things out of Taiwan. They used to have those tiny little gold stickers on the backs of them made in Taiwan. Yeah. So that was an initiative by the government. And what that did was that every family had a product that they made in their living room and they got paid for that. So that was really the beginning of women's liberation through making in Taiwan for into financial independence. So myself and my Taiwanese collaborator were, were looking at how um, craft or specifically embroidery and sewing and um, quilting has become um, a, a key element to women's liberation um, over time. So, but also the symbols that it holds in it and the knowledge that it holds in it and the oral traditions that are usually passed down in the process of teaching that. Mm. So what we were doing is was working with women's communities. We started working with the Hmong refugee community in Thailand because 
if you are a refugee in Thailand, you can live there, but you can't work there. So for the community, it's mainly women because the men are still in the, in whatever country they're in. Um, so the women and the children are refugees in Thailand. Uh, a lot of them have children and they can't work. So what we were doing was commissioning them to be able to make their textile piece at home with their children together uh, to supplement their income, but also enable them to work from home. So it was really interesting because the work that they made was just so incredibly beautiful and so loaded, you know, with yeah. like the symbology and the histories. And so we take those works and then we worked with the um the women's tribe in Taiwan and um, down in Taitung, um, who, and th these women are the same uh, DNA as Māori. So there's a direct connection between Taiwan and Aotearoa there. So it was really fascinating working, working with the women and using their textiles and listening to their conversations and their narratives. And then we take the textile, the traditional textile, and then we turn that into a contemporary artwork. So what we did was take all of the different um, embroidery, quilting, all of the textile works, and we made a house out of it uh, that was based on the architecture of um, the marae mm -hmm. and uh, also the traditional buildings in um, Taiwan. So wow. the, there was the same visual link there to, to their community houses, yeah. to the marae. So, and then we project onto the house, onto the textile that all the women have made, the films from working with both women's communities so that the backstory of how the house is made is embedded into that uh, in the process and the histories and the stories. So, yeah, it's um, it's really, really traditional, traditionally made, but then it's a very, very contemporary work when it's installed. So any works like that, you, you need the full three months to do it because you're working with the communities, you're building trust, and you've got mm. to then take their work and then remake your own work with that work. So it's quite an in-depth process. When you're busy as a mum, I mean, when do you do? When do you get the thinking time? I mean, do you have a a portion of that artist of that residency where you can just sort of stop and and do the thinking and then? figure out how it's going to work or do you kind of go in there running with the idea? Um, a little bit of both because we worked with the Mons women's community in Thailand in 2018. Um, myself and my collaborator have kind of developed this project now. Mm. So our goal, like ideally what we would like to go to do is go to different countries yeah. and work with different communities and That'd keep making multiple houses, mm. you know, in the same architecture that resonates to their culture and um, then have essentially a community of houses all made out of the textile um, from the women's communities. And what actually happens to that house? Is it up somewhere for people to see for a period of time and then comes down? Yes, yes. So it was up uh, for four months. I think mm. the work's just come down, the show's just ended and... Um, the Titum Fine Arts Museum. So it's just come down. And then it was um, repurposed and reinstalled for 
um, Bangkok Fashion Week because it was all textile. Now we have yeah. it and we will re-show it again, Yeah. Um, hopefully with, an, with another house. Yeah. And I'd like to think that craft is becoming more valued as a, as a fine art. I mean, you are we are seeing more of those kind of um, industries coming through into fine art. But, Absolutely. I think it's just yeah. that conversation around value of being aware yeah. of the histories associated to it. Mm. Uh, and the narratives and the oral traditions that are embedded in it, mm. uh, which have, have been easy to be overlooked because it's been such a male-dominated space. But yeah. I think kind of retextualizing our role within that it has been really critical, um, yeah. and therefore there's more visibility around that. Yeah, which is good. And you're uh, doing you're doing a lot towards making that happen for sure. What about yeah, Shadows of the Awakened collaboration? Oh, yeah, that's pretty special. <laughs> yeah, of yeah, course. I love that. Uh, with the amazing Miss Ella Brewer, um, who I just adore and am still working with across countries. We now send each other works, which is kind of cool. Um, so this work was kind of Ella is a she's, tra- she's traditionally trained in um, Tibetan tanka painting. The, the Buddhist form so we were having a conversation because the those works when they're fully realized are considered enlightened artworks that um, hold the deity and the energy of the deity so you can use them for prayer and for altars and offerings mm. but um, you really have to understand Buddhism quite deeply to understand the symbology and the meaning and be very respectful to the work so we wanted to create another series of works to open out that space of offering and domestic altars um, for people to have sacred objects as artworks in their houses without having to be to take their vows and go down the full route of Buddhism. So we created the Shadows of the Awakened series, which is a, a paired back, stripped back um, it's almost a shadow of the enlightened works so uh, that's why the title is called that so they are based on the buddhist forms and then all of the materials that are used in the works are the offerings to the gods themselves so um, I grow the flowers and I press the flowers myself and then we use uh, earth and different muds and pure silver and pure gold and water. And that's it. That's the only materials in the work. Mm. So, and we create those works um, and, and had paper. been doing so for a couple of years, just really for our own selves, experimenting on where we could go with them and what they look like and working through how that works. Cause it was really, it was really difficult for Ella initially to, um, to strip them back like that. Mm. To, to lose so much information and to, to really pair them back, it was quite a challenge for her because her work is so detailed and so intricate. Mm. Um, and also for me, I, I didn't know if I felt like I had permission to be working in that space with those forms as well because they are the sacred forms. So we both had to go through a process of, um, you know, I had to, I've studied now, studied Buddhism and, um, Ella's gone through her process of trust with me <laughs> uh, and now we've got to a stage where I think the works are, are really really quite beautiful and they really do hold their energy and resonance 
And then two years ago, His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, released an album called the Sh- um, Inner World. So his album is his uh, mantra and his voice uh, with contemporary music that was made by New Zealand musicians. Um, and it's an incredibly special album. I'm not sure if you've listened to it, but if you no, haven't, haven't, do. It's just hearing His Holiness's voice and, you know, there's indige- Indigenous instruments and it's just it's just something else. So when they were creating that work, they wanted artwork that was inclusive, that to bring it into a new audience, to, to open it out to a contemporary audience with the contemporary music and the contemporary art. So Ella and I were commissioned to create a work for each track. So when you look at, if you Google in a world and you bring it up on YouTube, the images are our animated artworks so that they have become um, meditation aids. So they move. So the, the head auras and the bodies, they, they move in timing with the breath so that it's a, it's a contact point to listen to his holiness and to focus on the breath and go in to the deity for the mantra. So we created 12 different artworks for one for each track. Mm, Um, It's been an incredibly beautiful process and obviously an amazing partnership with his holiness and to be able to have the work validated in that space. And again, to see it bringing benefit. You know, it's that same well-being education um, location. So even though it's not social practice per se, it's the, the role that it has and the outcome of what the works are doing are still very much within that space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and are they, they're, they're, they are on, on paper, those works, aren't they? They are on paper. Yeah, which uh, yeah. is different for you, isn't it? Very. Yeah. 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 So but how, there is how, something about growing the flowers and the cycle, the the way the works are made um, with the earth, the water, um, the flowers and the mud mm. uh, and the, the silver and gold, that they're very precious. They're incredibly, mm. incredibly precious. Mm. Uh, so they are offerings until them to, to, for themselves. For yeah. us, we, we see them as making, it's an offering. Um in the process that they're all blessed all the materials are blessed uh it's it's a very considered process that mm. to bring the works into the world yeah so, so those works um, have been have been used alongside the music um and what's yeah. happened to them now is that something that people could actually purchase to take home we could we do so we do print and we still but we do have um a couple of the originals left but um and then we do the hybrid prints so that is a print of the original work and then we repaint and repress flowers back into that so that every work is still unique and different and an original even though it's taken from the print the prints Mm. reworked again um which is a really lovely process so Mm. it's everyone's still an original yeah, that's beautiful. And I mean your your practice is just so incredibly varied, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's not intentional. Ideas, <laughs> but yeah, you come up with so many different ways of, you know, connecting people and 
building relationships and educating and empowering. It's all the same thing. It just manifests really differently for the for the right space. But mm. it's yeah, if I kind of look at the core essence of what I do, it, it is all the same. It, it all comes from the same place. The intention is all the same. It just the iterations and the aesthetics seem to just slightly shift. <laughs> yeah, depending on where you are and who you're working with, I guess. And yeah. is it, how do you find that sort of ephemeral aspect of your work, of much of your work that, you know, it doesn't always stay? I mean, obviously you have record of it, but um, do you feel, do you find it hard to kind of let go or, or see th- see your work kind of disperse? Uh, no, because I'm Buddhist. <laughs> so that's really, it makes way more sense to me mm. in that, you know, that holding the truth of impermanence and you know all things shall pass and you know that that everything has its own lifetime of of benefit um and then it can move on so no that's fine that's um in some ways part of it you know that it's a moment in time that it's experiential that there's something super beautiful about that as well that every time that you come back and encounter a work it's changed it's different Mm. so it's not the same thing all the time like even total internal reflection you could visit it every day and it would have been different every day through the participation of it so Mm. um that I think a lot of of my Buddhist practice comes through the work a lot of of my belief systems and a lot of my intentions uh the work and the practice the arts practice and my Buddhist practice are very closely connected um, you may not see that, but I think it's more about the backstory of the intention or how it's created uh, and the processes in that um, are very sacred to me and um, are very protected. And there's there's always prayer, there's always the ceremony, there's always there's always the safety for me of putting the, that spiritual, space around it to make sure that the intention and what comes through that space is correct mm. um and has been asked permission <laughs> of mm. yeah. so yeah I think the, the two things that are very closely aligned whether you would know that at the end of the day I'm not sure but in terms of keeping the process protected and making sure that I am ethically facilitating the, that in the right way um, it's it's a very the the arts practice and the Buddhist practice are very closely connected. Mm, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, um, I think it's a deep connection to the sacred space. It's a deep connection to the land, and it's a deep connection to people. Um, all, I think all of those things come through in different ways mm. of uh, feeling like the whole is, you know, more important than the self. Mm. Um, that that as much as possible there's the ego is removed that it's not really about what I want to say it's more about facilitating others um I think probably the philosophy behind what I do is deeply um influenced by my ethnicity for sure and the more time that I spend with indigenous cultures the stronger that stronger that comes out you know Mm. Any anywhere in the world for sure, you know. I think mm. there's so 
so much knowledge in the Indigenous cultures that are deeply connected to the spirit and the land yeah. um, and to people and all, all of those things are, are vitally important to me and that, I mean, even Indra's bow is a very subtle way of acknowledging that. And I've, I've seen lots of photos of, um, well, particularly your daughter when she was younger, sort of just being a part of what you do and and you obviously really involve your kids in, in your projects and um, how do you find that? Does that sort of influence what you do and, and the work that you make? Definitely. I mean, the residency in Thailand was based on the challenges that female artists face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I would have got to that same point without children. <laughs> yeah. It was an authentic inquiry. <laughs> There's also no separation for me in anything, that everything is, is one. So there's no like I go to work and then I come home. There's, there's, there isn't any of that as much as possible. You know, every, my children are involved in everything and are a part of everything. Yeah, it's brilliant that you can give that to your children, you know. So, Tiffany, we are on to our quickfire questions at the end. Can you believe it? It's already been over an hour. It's just about, it's way past my bedtime, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say it must be. <laughs> yeah, how you going? 26. <laughs> so anyway, I'm still awake. I've had my coffee, so I'm I'm doing well. But um, I'd be really interested to know who your favourite artists are or, or perhaps um, New Zealand artists and and why, or can you choose one or two artists that maybe have influenced you? Um, yeah, sure. I'm uh, Lisa Rehana, of course, and the Pacific Sisters, of course. Um, you know, such a vital force in the world that is incredibly necessary and needed uh, and a very pivotal time to have the voice of a uh, strong Pacific identity. Mm. Um, uh, Jay Hoon, I really I love his work. I really resonate with his work, the impermanence and bringing through that Korean energy and shaman shamanism is really important. I think that is, you know, that I think potentially the Indian diaspora or the Asian diaspora is um, does not have the same platforms in New Zealand, and I think we need to work on that in terms of inclusion and diversity and the changing face of New Zealand and acknowledging that there is a huge Asian diaspora within New Zealand. Mm. and making us feel more represented in that space. Uh, Mandrika Rupa, who I recently collaborated with for A Place to Stand, which was the first contemporary Indian art exhibition in New Zealand ever last year, this year, which is kind of crazy. She is a force to be reckoned with and her film work that dates back since the um, 70s, 80s is phenomenal. and she has one of those people that's come into my life and just really changed the way I see things. And she's been incredibly inspirational to me as a senior Indian artist. Mm. Um, yeah, I think we do need to work on the Asian representation. I do. So the artists working in that space are really important to me um, as my contemporaries also. Um, just hold on to that I guess you know Mm. I guess it was a naivety I guess which we often speak of as a negative 
But I think in some ways, I think that um, it was actually really beneficial to Mm. just have that belief in the power of art uh, and people and that, yeah, just to hold on to that. Hold on to it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. I agree. Yeah, especially with the kind of work that you do, it's just you've, you know, it must be one of those things, the kind of practice where you're, you know, you're not just making, but you're having to think about all the other things that need to happen. There's a lot of give. There's a lot of give. Yeah, yeah. And um, why do you think you make the kind of work that you make? Uh, Because innately I am a creative human and that is the gift that I have and I need to try and find a way to be as beneficial and as helpful as I can within that space and the social practice and this is the only this is the only thing I can do that makes me feel like I'm being useful in the world and helping people make a difference, whether that's as small as it is, it's something. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're doing really important stuff and it's amazing and it's so visually beautiful at the same time. I just, yeah, I just want to be useful. I just, yeah, want to try and find a way to support people and the well-being and the education just be useful in that space and maybe just bring a conversation to the table that m- enables people just to open their minds and not be judgmental and try and see things from a different perspective mm. and that that's a win if I can do that you know even if just one person's like I haven't thought about it like that before I hadn't yeah. considered it from that point of view then I think that's really powerful Absolutely, yeah, and I, I, I honestly think your work is doing that. So yeah, keep on doing what you're doing. <laughs> thank keep you. Keep going. <laughs> but thank you so much, Tiffany. It's been such a joy to meet you again and um, and hear more about your practice, which is just so inspirational and uh, amazing. And the the work that you're doing with with different groups of people, and particularly children, from my point of view, is amazing. So uh, thank you so much for coming to the Creative Matters podcast and for joining no, us you're this so welcome. or this evening. <laughs> and uh, have a lovely day. I hope it's not too cold in London today. The sun is shining. It's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, well, that's good. All right. Well, take care and I hope to see you another time. Of course. Thank you so much.